Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to, well, what I think, and it's my podcast, is a very special, very important episode to go with our future history week. What do you reckon, Zach? Yeah, this is, we've been building up to this, haven't we? So we we recorded a few back along and then we decided that we needed more history of the future and particularly the history of the future of history. Yeah. If that makes any sense. This week we've done like climate change a history of climate change what it means for the future what else have we done drone warfare we did as well so we've done some quite particular ones but then I said to you damn it we need a panel we need a panel like the time we all screamed about the statue thing about um diversifying history and this is so topical at the moment isn't it um and you went out and found a panel and you know what Zach I'm just gonna leave it to you to host this because you've put it together and you've done quite a scary looking list of points as well but we basically it's not that scary and this is history hack so we are going to chuckle and we are going to laugh and stuff but I think it's important to talk about how we make sure going forward that history isn't um all about the history of white men which to be fair it has been for a very long time um yeah go on Zach yeah, too right. It has. Um, and it's got really quite tedious. Um, so we are joined by some of our, fa- I think it's fair to say some of our favourites, Alex, not that we, you know, have a disliking for our, any of our guests, but Very we, favorites, though. yeah, oh, we do have favourites. People favorites. are cancelling their subscriptions right now. <laughs> but basically, if we were going to do a short list of who we could go drinking with that had been on History Hack, these people would be on that list. Yeah, we haven't shut up about these three for pretty much ever since we last recorded with them. So we are joined by Holly Pinero, who is Assistant Professor at Furman University. Folks will remember his brilliant podcast recently on the families in the USA during the American Civil War, Black families specifically, and their experiences during and then particularly after the Civil War. It was a brilliant podcast. Folks, go back and have a look at it. His um, book, The Families Civil War, is out soon with the University of Georgia Press. And I didn't realise this until we were talking before we went on air, as it were, but you're the first African-American to be tenured as a professor in your department. Is that right? 
that's the dream. So I'm tenure track, um, you know, on, on track, I guess, to get tenure. There was um, someone here who was non-tenure track. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that and the, the weight that has been put on my shoulders um, in terms of just like, I should not be a trailblazer. Like I like to study trailblazers, um, but that even goes to other institutions I've worked at where I was either the third or the, the fourth single digits. Um, and this is at R1s as well. Um, so that's a whole nother conversation. I mean, I would say that certainly myself and Alex are not surprised that you are a trailblazer on the grounds of your research, but for you, to be, for you to be a first is kind of like for real. Um, we're also joined by Matthew Restall, who folks will remember from a couple of podcasts we've done on the Aztecs and the Maya. Matthew is Professor of History, Anthropology and Women's Studies and is Director of Latin American Studies at Pennsylvania State University. Uh, and again, folks, go back, listen to the Maya podcast, listen to the Aztec podcast. They were brilliant. And we are joined by Amara Solari. Amara is Professor of Art History and Anthropology and Director of Graduate Studies in Art History at Pennsylvania State University and joined Matthew, because they're a husband and wife duo, on the podcast on the Maya for what was a brilliant kind of bust up between the two of them about <laughs> what well, it wasn't that much of a bust up. I mean, you I tried I, to make it a bust up. I, I might have stirred it slightly. Yeah. Um, but Amara, you were the first female professor of art history within your department as well. Is that right? To earn the title of full in the mm. department. Yes. I think we hired my boss technically at the full level, but she came from elsewhere. So nobody had actually been granted full while they've been at the university. It's insane, isn't it? It's 2021. And we're not singling out any institution because we've been talking before we started recording. And this this is pretty standard across the board. I mean, Amara, you joked. You do art history. Art history is all women, right? All women. But I mean, nowadays, pretty much, not completely, but let's say 85%, maybe 90% women. Yeah. But who have those women been studying? Traditionally in art history, mostly, aren't they, haven't they been studying like White dead white dudes yes yeah, um, yeah we'll get to that from like how Europe, how we need to blow up art history from, yes from italy not to be oh not from, there's anything wrong not with just italy, italy but, but like tuscany like you have to be <laughs> tuscany <laughs> I, love how, yeah. I guess one thing, we, yeah, one thing <laughs> we want to do is talk about i guess we need to start by talking about what the problem has been um and the problem is that the focus has been too narrow and that we have all been obsessed with white dudes um, for a very long time. Uh, so I guess the problem is the problem historiography, which is a word that makes us all just want to go <sighs> because it's the first thing they teach you undergrad year one. And you just think, oh, God, no. So, I mean, like Holly, interestingly, before we started, you said, <laughs> what, what's the first thing that springs to your mind when we talk about historiography? <laughs> Racism. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, exclusion, if we're using one word, uh, misogynistic, and all this, you know, I think, and I, I can only speak from my subfields, right? Because I yeah. go, I'm a gender historian, African-American historian, Civil War, 19th century, 20th century. You know, I think of, for many, generally, right, when they hear historiography, they feel like it's dull. And I'm going to the points other panelists made because it's privileging, usually, historically select groups of people and even that like very small subset, um, you know, but I also have to remind myself when I talk to my students about historiography is that it shaped public discourse for generations. If we're talking about the civil war, 
going to the Dunning School, right? Like I remember when I figured out what that was in undergrad and I was like, wait, that makes sense as to why, you know, this white supremacist rhetoric and um, I don't say, I, almost war, uh, historical worship of these oppressors, of these racists, of these insert horrific and correct adjective to describe them, why it was normalized. Having said that, I'm like many others, I'm trying to emphasize what USCT veterans who became historians were doing, that they are using historiography to empower themselves and their people, right? But they're also critiquing even those who are talking or not talking about the Black military experience. And in my book, I'm latching on to many other scholars who are saying, look, Black people have been trying to make their history known for a long time. And maybe it wasn't published and disseminated in the way that white scholars were, but Carter G. Woodson was learning about historiography and it was a way to empower. So Dubois is doing this phenomenal work and many others, right? You know, even Susie King Taylor is documenting her lived experiences and unemployment issues for her veteran husband. And that's part of the historiography. So it's a way to talk about black women's experiences in the civil war, which I'm trying to do with my second book is say, look, black soldiers knew very well that the war was gonna be won with black women's involvement in every sense of the word. They were the war. We Historiography has privileged white women North and South, but black women, other particularly Northern black women or black women in the Midwest seem to just be at the periphery. Even though if you read most books, they'll say black women did this, black women were there, they're there, they're here, they're doing. So yeah, I, historiography, even though the word can sound scary or boring, it's like, I'm gonna, I'm trying to push along with people like Hillary Green and many others to say there has been a systemic problem with how historiography has been co-opted to push agendas that are very uh, exclusive and say, why can't we recenter conversations on black families, black women and others? Um, let's go to Zach as well. But I just is this because like I'm going to say now that I have been told as a brown historian before. Yeah, but like. The Indians didn't write stuff down or the, the mm. ethnic people didn't write it down. So that's why it's all the point of view of this. And so or is it that or is it just where we've chosen to put the lens? Can I come yeah. straight in there? Because this is what I was going to say. Isn't part of the problem here the people who were doing the writing? You know, we, we have this. One of the things that we kind of picked out as one of these points to discuss is the old tradition of history to focus on inverted commas heavily emphasized here the great men mm -hmm. of history mm -hmm. lots of problems there in what you're choosing to clarify as quantify as great in the first place focusing on men i.e only telling half of the story in terms of <laughs> humanity and the the focus it it goes back to kind of grand narratives where people were writing well, as, as the kind of word suggests, they're writing the story, but they're writing a story very specifically from their perspective. And all these people who are writing these things, these books that have been handed down to us and are now 100, 150 years old, they're all white men looking at it through the lens of white men in positions of quite considerable privilege, usually sitting at somewhere like Oxford or Cambridge. And that has then shaped the following discussions, because when you start off reading one of these narratives, you're starting off in a very particular mindset. And actually the challenge becomes putting yourself into a different position and saying, actually, forget what's gone before. 
let's take a fresh perspective. And it's only more recently that we've started to embrace that. Yeah. Do you um, are you finding exactly the same issues in the field of um, South, South America when you look at stuff? Well, for sure, because we, I mean, in, in Latin America, we already have a colonial and now neo-colonial legacy, right? So you already have Europeans being primarily the people who, from the colonial period, you know, from 1492, controlling that particular narrative. And as um, Holly was speaking, I was thinking so much, and Zach as well, so much of what you are both kind of speaking around is the privileging of text and the privileging of writing and who has access to education and who has access to writing and publication venues nowadays. And so I think from my perspective, what really has to happen if we're going to dismantle this kind of myth of that historiography has placed before us is we have to really give full credit to alternative forms of knowledge production because if we start to do that, then this issue of who's writing things doesn't really matter anymore, right? Because you have indigenous groups who don't have writing systems, but they damn well know their history and they have different ways of recording it, whether it's an art or orally, you know, incredible ways of recording this history. And it's deep, it's not generational, right? This goes back centuries. And so I think we have to get over the Western obsession with text. And until that happens, I honestly, you know, kids, kids, our students, <laughs> adults, they believe what they read, right? And so if things are written down, particularly if they're written down a really long time ago, there's assumed to be a kind of truth value there. And I think that needs to be exploded. I think as well, like we talk about, oh, but like, okay, so an African-American woman did not sit down and write a two-volume history of the American Civil War. But as Holly has proven, an African-American woman sent 800 pages worth of correspondence to the US government, which exists still today, about her experience of the Civil War. Are we, or have we been lazy as well in terms of gathering? Oh, oh, now you got my blood going. <laughs> so um, I, I'll, I'll just make this point. Like I've had the privilege of having a, a graduate advisor who had our classes immersing ourselves in Civil War pension records. And they're phenomenal. And they're not just for Black soldiers and families. They're for anyone who files. And they go to the revolutionary period through now. Um, you know, they talk about uh, history of disability. They talk about familial dynamics. They talk about education. They talk about unemployment. They talk about marriage. I was trying to, and I realized you all, but the listeners won't, but you know, here are testimonial documents of people telling their lives and not just the uh, individuals that are trying to get the pension, but someone you know, saying, hey, I knew Alex. And actually, let me tell you my story real fast because this is the only opportunity I have to do it. You know, and then the invalid claims, there's marriage certificates, there's all this documentation that it's it's always been there. And that's why when people, I'm like, always a little weirded out when they're like, your work is so revolutionary. I'm like, it's always been there. Yeah. It's not like black women's voices have always been there in the record. My advisor knew it. You know, everyone, like the, they clearly knew it. The only thing I'm doing is taking things like the census, which is super dry. And, but it does give you this way to understand who are, is living in these places. How is the federal government assessing, usually in a racist, misogynistic way, but still they're in the record. And even if they're not, it's being transcribed and it's usually done through a white lens, is that their voices are the centerpiece. 
and someone else can flip it and look at children specifically. I mean, there's so much richness to how we look at sources that have always been there. Because one of the bigger points I'm arguing is, is the lost causes crap. Because um, if you look at Civil War pension records, the federal government is document, documenting and awarding and recognizing Black military service long into the, the when lost causes entrenched. So the federal government through the pensions is actually saying, that's a lie. We do remember. And I'm not saying it's a blissful experience to get on the pension, but they're remembered. Yeah. I mean, so my stuff at the moment is like self-inflicted wounds and there's not one single mention of it in the official medical history of the film. There is one throwaway reference to suicide as well. It's as if this did not happen. And yet the stuff is there anecdotally. It is there in military records as well, but it's just, there's nothing centralized. But once you start digging, it is there. And once you start digging, it becomes clear very quickly that the British army in World War I was more sensitive than you think they were to people's mental health before, and I'm talking before the latter half of the war when they started to get really into the idea and they sort of moved on from a definition of shell shock and assuming it was like vibrations from the shells and started dealing with it as mental health issues and opening up special hospitals and things like that. But before that, they're saying to these guys, I've got a list of guys who did it and they're going, well, you're not, you're not capable of holding a rifle and being on a frontline thing. I'm moving you to a labor unit. I'm moving you to the engineers. I'm moving you back from the front line so that I can still yeah. use your contribution and I need your, I need manpower and I need labor, but I recognize that you should not be in the fighting line because of your mental health. So this, you're right. The stuff is there. And I think personally that what we've done is inherit a laziness for the sort yeah. we look at yeah. from generations before us. This isn't just that we all woke up racist and thick and decided not to look. <laughs> this is sort of this is how people have been taught to be historians yes. for generations now. I think this, and I'll just clo- close with this point, is like I think you're hitting on something really, really important. Is that to me it, it demonstrates that there's a problem with the profession in terms of who are in leadership positions who's in the front of the classroom. And I say this, I love my advisors from undergrad. Um, I, you know, I went to community college, I went to grad school, but I only had through my entire collegiate experience, two black professors, like at, I'm talking major and small schools. And I remember saying to my undergraduate professor, look, I, I, I love you and you're, you've been very instrumental in shaping the way I think and see things, even myself, but you'll never really get black history the way I do, or others like me, because you do it because it's interesting versus I do it because it's an obligation. I have to tell these stories. And I say that because when I teach students, Black students in particular, they'll say, you talk about history the way we talk about it with our family. And I'm like, yep, and I'm going to make them hear it. I'm going to make them see what we know has always been there. So it's like, again, Carter G. Woodson, Dubois, like all these people have been doing it. I'm just glad to be, you know, in that realm. I'm not saying I'm them, I'm not, but just like that, I'm trying to empower, to tell stories where we need, you know, people who are from those communities. They're going to tell it in a way that's more, I don't want to say real, right? Like it's, it's more personal, I think. And that makes it more, the passions there. Like when people see me talking, like you're so passionate, like, I want you to understand black people matter. I don't care what period of time. I want you to understand women matter. Right? We don't need to talk about white men. They can be pushed to the background, right? Like because they've had their time. 
when you were speaking, Holly, earlier, I was thinking, you know, you were kind of advocating, we were talking about the archive, right? And mm. what the archive can lend. And I was thinking, well, he's really talking about a kind of profound methodological shift, but you're not, you're talking about like a methodological pivot. Mm. And Alex, you as well, right? Where you just, you read, like Matthew's work so often, he's reading the same sources that people have read, but just with this kind of different lenses, this different perspective. And it's, it's amazing to me the different narrative that can be elucidated by just, just very so slightly looking for a particular kind of information in a particular way. And then the whole kind of tapestry of human history becomes so much more complex, right? And it's not this unidirectional evolutionary model of like the great white man, you know, progress, progress, progress. In my field, the term genius right, is always applied. Like, Right. Name a, a female artist who's considered a, a genius in the art historical trope. It doesn't exist. Mm. Matt, do you want to? You haven't got a word in edgeways. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, that's, isn't that appropriate? In but the, the, the two white men in the room can't get a word in edgeways. I love it. <laughs> Maybe Revolution for the whole hour. Begun. Every time Zach and I open our mouths, you just say, uh, yeah, okay, zip. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that would be just fine. I mean, I really that would be fine. I've had plenty of time, you know, in the, in the last half century to talk. <laughs> no one wants to hear. But seriously, historiography haven't haven't. I was going to say we, but I haven't said anything. But haven't you been really answering that question? Why is historiography? Why, why do we have that reaction? This is a boring, dull word. I, I certainly do. That's a really. It's actually a really good question. It's like, why does it seem boring? And I think it's because obviously not in our classes, but traditionally, what historiography is, is telling somebody, this is the canon. These are the foundational works. Uh, these are the ones you need to know about and understand. And, you know, they are usually, you know, written by white men, often, you know, about white men. I'll come and get to that in a minute. And it doesn't open your mind. It's not about opening your mind, about questioning, about his received wisdom. Now, how can we kind of dismantle it? It's about accepting that received wisdom as part of your training, right? So that you then kind of become part of, of this system. And I think instinctively we kind of sense the, the boringness of that, that, that our minds are being kind of closed off. And, but what we have not been sufficiently led to is understanding that the entire system has been created in the era of values that to us are profoundly racist and sexist and colonialist. Mm. I'm talking about like late 19th, early 20th century. So the peak of the imperial period, right? When almost everybody in the world was part of a colony, running a colony, a colonial subject, whatever it is when, uh, you know, think of what was happening in, um, in the United States in the late 19th century, for example, right? And that's the era when these disciplines have been created, not just history, all of them. And therefore, the relationship that the disciplines have with each other, with the past, like, oh, you know, when do you get to study, you know, Indians? And when do you get to study, you know, the, uh, the arrival of, oh, civilization and all, and all the kind of like colonialist racist stuff in, in our field. And there's the equivalent in, in Holly's field as well. It's, it's all built into the structure. And so it's not enough to say, look, let's just start writing books about the great white men. Now let's add in the people who've been missing. I mean, that, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. We've all been doing that. That's, but it's just a step. It has to be just a step towards 
something else in which all these kind of barriers are all broken down. And while I've while I'm talking, because once you guys start up again, I won't be able to get a word in. <laughs> Um, I'm really interested, I'm interested in Holly, what you think about this, this whole, um, this idea of, of who you get to study based on who you are. And this is something that has, um, I kind of have been wrestling with for my whole career, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right from when I had my very first job in a small college in Texas, and I, and I was teaching Mexican history. And I had Mexican-American students who, whose families had been in Texas since it was part of colonial Mexico, right? And a couple of these guys said to me, kind of reminded me when you were talking about the things you said, Holly, to your, to your undergraduate professor, said, I, I love what you're teaching us and no one has told us about this stuff before, but you can't possibly really understand. You can't really possibly have that knowledge because only only someone who's a Mexican-American can really understand and should therefore study Mexican-American history. So there I got into this debate. I was like, but surely that's wrong. Surely everybody should be able to study everything else. I mean, it's, it's, it's about the, uh, the ability of our intellect to apply ourselves to any subject, right? It isn't the whole point that the color of our skin shouldn't matter. Right. And that, that was kind of the position I took. But then, you know, over the years, I realized it's like, you know what? I can study whoever I like. I've written books about people of indigenous descent and African descent, mm-hmm. because that's part of my privilege. I get that choice, right? As you said, it's like, oh, you know, you're doing this because you're curious, because you're interested. But if someone who doesn't look like me, who hasn't had the benefits and advantages and privileges that I've had, do they get that kind of choice? Mm. No, they, they don't. And so therefore, again, it's about a step, right? Like I, I love to think that we could be in a world where you, Holly, are writing books about the Maya, right? right? And I'm writing books about, you know, black families in the American Civil War. Now, right. are, are our perspectives going to be better than Maya's writing about Maya's or mm. African writing? No, that's not about better or worse. It's about multiple perspectives, right? And it's about choice. It's about, it doesn't matter. It matters who you are, and yet, yet it doesn't matter, right? It matters who you are because you have a unique perspective on your subject as your students are picking up on, right? right. But at the same time, it also doesn't matter in that, in that we want to get to a place where you can study whomever, whatever you like. It doesn't matter what those people look like and what their experiences was. And also, going back to what Amara was saying, it doesn't matter whether you're studying text what mm-hmm. kinds of forms of communication and record you're studying, that shouldn't put you in a pigeonhole. Like, oh, I'm sorry, you're digging holes in the ground and pulling up bones. Therefore, your conversation is completely different. Your vocabulary has to be different. You're in a different department. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I, okay, I'm ranting now, but I'm coming to the end. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see this getting that much better in terms of the disciplines. I see that there's a hardening that has been taking place. Right. where the disciplines are kind of pulling apart from each other. And the, the more we talk about crossing these divisions, the more there's kind of a hardening, because it's, it's scary, right? What happens? You, you're going to burn the whole house down and build it from scratch. Then we yes. have, but then what about tenure? Right? People, people <laughs> are almost like, on my computer. It all. <laughs> Burn it down. Start so again. I was just, before I forget, like, uh, Matt, as you were talking, like, you you made me think of a conversation I had in grad school about, like, a methodology course that, I hope these people aren't listening. That was like, it was, I, w- I did not leave that 
particular class enthused with like this is what we do like this is the like the, the tradition and i hate those kind of words um and i remember saying when we were reading like hegel and some other people and i said during class once i go you know why this stuff sucks i said this all sucks to me because it's exactly what you said before these are old white men and what is are you telling me nothing has changed in the field since they wrote it i can't and i remember saying this like I can't go to Harlem and I can't go to Compton and go talk to some people on the corner about this history and why it matters. If I'm using Hegelian like language, they're going to be like, shut the heck up. So I've always made it my, my responsibility with how I engage with the work, how I write about it, how I talk about it to, to make it to when I could, I could give my book or give a talk to um, your neighbor. I can, so when I talk about my research, um, I talk to people who are military families like myself, and I don't give the jargon, right? Even now, my undergrad classes are getting critical race theory. They don't know it, right? Like, but they're getting it. But at the, they're getting feminist theory. They're getting all these, like, these theories. I'm just not hitting them with things like, yeah, by the way, you're learning infopolitics, even though they, they're learning infopolitics. Imagine communities, because I want them to understand, like, this is engage. Let's have fun. History, you know, archaeology. Like, why can't we just have fun engaging with it? Um, to your question or the, the internal debate, like you're hitting on something I struggle with, to be clear. I am a gender historian. One of my, my advisor was like one of the OGs for like, uh, you know, gender history. And I, it's helped me understand who I am and better understand the people in my life and the people I interact with. So even my mother who's a military veteran. I use her as a lived, a lived example when I talk about military history through a, a gendered lens. I'm like, so she's a single woman raising three kids and served in the military, including going into combat zones. So is she my mom? Society says that's a male responsibility, you know, historically. So she's doing a dad, you know, a, a father, a man's role. So is she my mom or my dad or my dad mom? Or how about she's just my mother? <laughs> and that's and that's and all the other parts. But at the end of the day, she's my mother. Um, but I say all that to say I. I will never claim, you know, that when I do my gender history and particularly focus on on women, that I am the, the you know, I know all the answers. I know, you know, just because I read it doesn't mean I can speak to what any woman or person experiences. I think the, the way I try to check myself is I always ask other scholars um, who live those kinds of experiences, like, how am I doing with this? Am I Am I being sensitive to it? Um, but I also yield the floor. So if Amar was like, yeah, I don't think that's right. Actually, it's, I would say it's this. I'm a, okay, because I don't live and understand the world in the same way as anyone, like other than me. I just, I, I want it for me, you know, it's about making history more personal, getting students excited. And I'll just close with this. I think the one thing that I try to do, which I encourage all of our, you know, people who are in leadership, particularly educational roles, is sometimes just tell a student, have you thought about going to graduate school? Or have you thought about doing this? Have you thought about working in a museum? Or, you know, have you thought about doing archaeology? Something it's like, you clearly like this. Because most times I get, I like history, but, and I'm like, oh, why did you stop there? Like, just like, <laughs> why, why did like you, so it's like, and I've noticed with some of my students, I'll write on their papers, you should think of grad school. Because I at least want to put that idea that I see the potential in them. I'm not saying they're going to go, but like, at least they know that someone of authority sees that you have the potential. Like my students in my survey course are reading Laboring Women. That's a book I read in grad school and I didn't understand it. 
And these students who are sophomore and freshmen are like, oh yeah, they're talking about this, and I'm just like, y'all smart. <laughs> He's so dumb. He's so smart. smarter than me. I think, I wonder if it's like, we've got to a point where, yes, the, the trailblazers like Holly are the first people that are going to come along and go, I am an African-American and I want to tell African-American stories. But do we mm-hmm. not, the next phase and what we need to do, because we're all, none of us are old. We're all going to be knocking around for a while. <laughs> incidents with buses or COVID. So is it our job in this generation to make it so that all of the kids coming through don't automatically opt for the white man lens so that their minds are open to going, well, I, I don't have to just write about the white dudes because there were more people than that there and I'm going to write about everybody or I want to focus on African-Americans just because I can. Is that where we go next, Matt? Uh, uh, what Holly was saying got me thinking about the discipline of history, which you know, we just were kind of bagging on that discipline. But, but, <laughs> but what, is, what is it that we do as historians, I mean, specifically me and Holly, I guess, here in the conversation, um, we take multiple sources and lines mm-hmm. of evidence and attempt to triangulate them, right? We, and the, the, the more different perspectives we have, and particularly ones that completely contradict each other and go get, the, then that's when we know we're getting somewhere because history is based on what people who mostly are dead have said about what happened. And as we know, human memory is intrinsically unreliable, right? Mm -hmm. So we do that as historians. And yet when we present history to the world, when we write writing our books and teaching our classes and so on, somehow we forget that and we expect them just to take one line of evidence, Mm -hmm. right? And so if we, if we're going to take the sort of the philosophy that is, um, underpins our discipline and apply it to how we teach history, then we need to be able to show them that there are, that, that there are different stories and different perspectives. And those come from people who look different and have had different experiences. Right. Have to be able to take classes with people who are from all different parts of the world right. and have different backgrounds and different perspectives and so on. And, and to see how those don't always kind of match up. I mean, right? It's so obvious it's when you think about it. So in this room, you have a black man, a brown girl, a female professor and two white men. And if you asked all of us what our opinion was on Donald Trump, I'm guessing they might be quite similar, but we would have. So I think I think Donald Trump and Tottenham would be the same response. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we would have five opinions. And the idea that history yeah. and historians in the past would have tried to come up with one argument and said, well, this is how people felt about this. There aren't even five people in this room who would agree on a subject. And that's being a historian is not, it's like, it's like the old myth about how everyone loved the idea of the First World War and everybody went out to Buckingham Palace and celebrated and went, yay, let's go bash the Hun. Bullshit. Actually, none of the working class people did because they were working 16 hour days and they couldn't leave their factory. So they didn't go. The only country where that might be true and you actually have working class people in the pictures is Russia in St. Petersburg. Everywhere else, they're middle-class crowds of university students with nothing better to do that day. They're not, it's not about coming up and saying, this is what the people thought, because the people doesn't exist. And I think that's what annoys me when I read history books. Oh, I just did that with my, talking about the constitution yesterday. (laughs) The students are freaking out when I was like, here's what the founding fathers actually said about who should have democracy and political power. And they're like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, here's the yeah. We the people, as in a few of us white guys yep. over here in the yep. corner, 
Zach, do you want to pause that? Are you still here? <laughs> I am still here. I, I'm just, there are times when you know that you've got nothing valuable to contribute to a brilliant conversation. Um, and, and that's one of them. You know, that's, that's the trick of podcasting, that sometimes you don't insert your voice into a conversation where it's not. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Not needed. Um, can I, before we move on, I have a, a question that... I wrestle with it a lot and it kind of taps into something that I think Matthew was sort of alluding to. We have history months. So we have a women's history month. We have a black history month. And in one sense, I love those ideas because obviously the point of those is to create a, a really intense focus on stories that up until now we have neglected. On the other hand, I have a fundamental problem with them in the sense that every month should be Black History Month and Women's History Month. My favourite one is Remembrance Day. I Some guy pulled me because my poppy had fallen off my ja- jacket on November the 10th last year. I went, why aren't you wearing a poppy? It's Remembrance Day. I went, dude, every fucking day is Remembrance Day for me. It's my life. It's my job. And he just, I think he looked at me like, oh, back away from the crazy lady now. You have a bumper sticker with that. Yeah. Every fucking day is Remembrance Day. Exactly. Right. <laughs> It is. It's like every every month is Black History Month for Holly. Why is it for well, so Hillary Green that group and go? We see you. We should. Well, be so Hillary Green and I have a joke about that, and a number of, of, of Black scholars in general, right? Not just historians, like because Black History Month is an opportunity to sell it. Like from the historical perspective, like I see the value and why it was you know pushed forth. But it's right around mid-January, I start going, oh, God, it's coming. Because <laughs> I look at the unpaid labor and the excessive work that voluntold and people are like, we have this great opportunity, you know, or the same could be said for women. You know, also, if I want to get jaded, why is it got to be the shortest month of the year in America? That's all another conversation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. And even Juneteenth, like people are celebrating it. And I am. But there's also the Civil War historian in me that's like, oh, God, I know what this means for yeah. my labor. Right. Because now I have to do this, you know, you're going to get lots of exposure in bunny mm-hmm. quotes, doesn't it? Because for me, it's like, why can't I talk about black history in November? Why can't I talk about women's history in January? They always is. The, it's like even saying U.S. history and then having a black history or a women's history course. Like, no, when I teach this survey, you're getting Native American. You're getting, you know, white European. You're getting all of it. It's not just you know, native born white men, whatever. It's like, this is all American history. It's messy. And it's like, we need to talk about, you know, people talk about this melting pot society. Well, then you can't do, you need to incorporate that into how we discuss 
remember, write, you know, history or just in general, right? Beyond even this field, archaeology, whatever. It's just, it's not every day is a day to reflect on. You know, I even think of Memorial Day and, you know, Veterans Day in the US. Like, I don't like those days because people think of them as holidays, right? Like, I'm going to go barbecue with my friend. And I'm saying here, like, as the child of a veteran, like seeing what she and many of her friends have and still go through, it's like we need to remember them all the time, right? And I'm not saying like parades and stuff, but like there should it should be like a just decent housing, right? But it, medical care, right? Yeah. I was gonna say the medical care—that's the one I get the most angry about. You know, people talk about you know homelessness here in this country, and I'm like, you know, a lot of those people, you know, historically have been military veterans, and there's a problem with that. So when you say get a job, insert derogatory term. What's the American stat? It's one a day, suicide. It's, 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 it's horrific. And, yeah. and it's, so it's like, those are the things that's like, we need to remember in meaningful ways, right? Not just say, oh, it's Women's History Month. Tomorrow, why don't you come talk now? And you're like, really? Where was like Thanks. next month? <laughs> <laughs> right, because it, then it's like, it's like they're remembering and tokenizing you at the exact same time. Yeah. And that's how I view that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think exactly. Like I'm available other than February. I'm just saying. <laughs> just saying. I don't go into an 11 month hibernation and just <laughs> to be black again next. Uh, like now's my time. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna put my shiny outfit on. Come out. Right, let me get my dashiki. Everybody. I'm ready. Let's do this. <laughs> that answer your question. I to think of the equivalent for Matthew and I, but I think for it's probably Columbus Day, right, or Indigenous Peoples Day. That's when it heats yeah. up. Yeah, I have to. Yeah, I have to talk about that next week. Every every year I get asked to talk about that, and every year I get, I feel... In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Less and less comfortable talking about it. Um, I mean, in a way, or in a perverse way, I'm a good person to talk about it because I don't have, I'm not Italian or Italian-American or indigenous or any of the kind of groups, but also really... Why, I mean, I, I think that there's a, a sense in which um, there's two things going on. One is the, the kind of siloization, right? Like if you, just, if you just have one month that's for women's history and one's for black history, then by implication, all the other months are for white history. Yeah, well, then you get all the TV documentaries and stuff going, oh, yeah, we'll come back next February when it's Black History Month. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, the yeah. other 11 months, we're not relevant, right? Right, right? right. And let's worry about, you know, the Columbus statues and whether it should be Indigenous peoples. Just for one day. And then exactly. after that, we can not worry about it for another year. Uh, but I think that the other thing is, is, is this sort of, maybe these are lazy solutions, right? Like, oh let's just like one month be for black history that there we go done okay now let's move on yep. so I, i'm not right. sure if that's fair enough to say that i think a lot of people put a lot of thoughts into trying to I solve that problem but it's, the a, it's intent a relatively, is there isn't it but it does feel lazy yeah and the other one is this is is the sort of replacement idea mm. um which there were lots of examples in recent examples in mexico which probably are not going to be useful to include here but we're talking about columbus indigenous people's day so there's that idea change it from columbus day to indigenous people's day 
which, you know, in, in a sense, I, I thoroughly endorse, right? But on the other hand, it doesn't, that doesn't stimulate debate and discussion, right? Mm -hmm. the repla well, by doing the replacement, you, you just, you kind of, it's like the lazy quick way of coming to the end of the, the topic and then moving on and then forgetting all about it. Yeah. Whereas if you call it Columbus and Indigenous Peoples Day or Columbus Day and Indigenous Peoples Day and you have the two of them side by side, they don't sit side by side very comfortably. And it, it's in, inside that discomfort are possibilities for discussion and, and debate and education and so on, right? That, that, that's what I think, which of course, you know, gets me in trouble because then everybody's unhappy. No, yeah, I don't I, like I, 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 So I hate, as a brown person, I hate positive discrimination as much as I hate discrimination. I think going, well, we have this university job, but you can only apply for it if you're black or Asian is just as bad as what got us here in the first place. I just, it just feels like if someone offers me a job just so I can be the token brown person, I am as offended as if they would say to me, yeah, we, we only want white people on TV. I mean, I think we're also hitting at something <clears throat> like, you know, monuments, because that's obviously where a lot of the conversations are, these different ways to commemorate, reflect, honor, whatever word you want to use. I'm also about like, what are the meaningful substantive ways we're changing a society, right? Wherever you are and whatever in that circumstance. So I'm thinking in the United States context, like, like, do I want Black History Month to go? No. Like, I want it to stay because it provides opportunities to tell these important stories, but it should be longer. But why can't we beyond that month? Um, talk about and actually make meaningful changes about inclusivity to access to education, right? Uh, and I'm not even talking just college. I'm talking, you know, we saw this last year where I worked in Augusta, Georgia, of like students of color did not have access to internet and computers to yeah. engage in remote work. And so what are we doing there? What are we doing with the generational issue of students of color who are, or poor students in general who are taking out massive loans that is riddling them for like, I have a student loan that is more than my mortgage, for example, yeah. that is ridiculous. And it's like, the, how are we working to, to actually uplift these communities, to protect them, to empower them in ways that will, you know, get them homes, get, get them, get them fed, get them, get them opportunities, employment, healthcare, right? Like, that's what I want to see. And I'm not saying get rid of those, but it's like actually doing policies that will impact positive ways. And I'm saying this even of universities, right? They'll put up a monument. They go, hey, this person was important at our school. And I'm like, how about a college scholarship or ships for people from that community? Because I, I, one thing I've seen at many institutions, and I'm not going to say which, um, is that the, the student body is predominantly privileged white men, right? So, and you see that the uh, surrounding communities are black, brown, whatever. They're not what the college campus looks like. And the people of color working on the campuses usually are in facilities or in different sports. And I'm not knocking those opportunities, but it's like, what about in presidential uh, leader, provost, um, dean, whatever, right? And, and how do we make the campus community the, the more inclusive? That's, that's how we can change society in profound ways because you have, their voices are heard. I don't know, whatever, I can go off on tangents on this. So. <laughs> well, we should let you because that segues yeah. us really nicely into um, what you are doing. Well, what we're doing is in me, you and Zach 
and nine other historians uh, of a military background. We will talk to Amara and Matt as well about how they feel it go in outside of this. But tell everyone about the WSC, Holly. Oh, uh, I guess I'll take that reins. I mean, part of this uh, is addressing something that's been an issue for a long time and having an, a very inclusive uh, organization, academic intellectual organization that is not just limited to historians, is not just limited to, you know, those in like subsets of various places of academia, to those who are independent scholars, those who are archivists, those who work in museum studies, those who do anything related to war and society, um, and not just limiting it to the, and I hate traditional, but traditional military history. Uh, And I say the motivation for me, sorry, somebody's doing something outside. The motivation for me is my work has always been devalued by traditional civil war scholars who would say things like, this is actually just African-American history, or this is just gender history. Or they'd say, this is too depressing. Like I actually had that once during a presentation, a white scholar said, this story is too depressing. I said, welcome to being black. <laughs> I said, but, oh, I could tell you off camera. <laughs> uh, happy and, Should we have a happy oh, history? All happy history all the time. <laughs> yeah. History. Well, so Happy history, nothing depressing on the on nothing the happy bad in humanity at all ever, mm-hmm. is there? So I've been put into what the subfield calls like the dark turn, which I'm like that's racist, but that's another conversation. Um, um, but it's like we're talking about for my work, it's about families, it's about communities, it's about disability, it's about issues of unemployment, it's about the war to be remembered, it's about pensions and understanding this federal social welfare program, that being the Civil War pension records. That's how we understand in totality, I believe, the war, in this case, the Civil War. And environmental historians push this even more in understanding if you look at Black Civil War soldiers, most of them die because of the environment and racist policies, not from Confederate weaponry. So we need to be more inclusive in understanding that we should not privilege a select subset of people to shape the Civil War or any discourse, um, whatever the period is. And that's what excites me is that we're trying, at least I hope is, create ways to get undergraduates, even high school students excited to do and have these conversations, which they have all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, um, but then also to make more accessible um, databases and you know archives and museums. And I, to me, what's awesome is there's limitless potential because we're in this for all of the hell of COVID. And it is a lot. It's opened up these opportunities for conversations to happen virtually. Like our conversations were with people whom I never met across the globe. And I'm bragging to my friends, like, I just talked to somebody over in, you know, England today. And they're like, oh, you're a big deal. I'm like, well, I kind of am. Like, <laughs> but it's like, it's, it's fun. Like it's just the, the conversations are, you know, very centered on how can we get more people uh, engaged in this and not just say this is a historian only group or this is a PhD only group or a you know graduate like no this is for I want, I'm going to tell my students the best query we for- had so far was the lady that came and went do you take old lady librarians from Canada <laughs> because I love this stuff and it was like hell yeah we love old lady librarians um, <laughs> this is why we've called ourselves war and society collaborative isn't it because it's all right. it's about we keep we keep flogging this not only war but societies at war because yes. that is all part of the war as well I'm still reeling from this suggestion that you can only do happy military history I'm not being funny but if you're studying conflict and you're not depressed at least once in the course of what you're reading about. Then you're a sociopath, right? 
It was and either that, or you're not looking in the right places, or you're doing this kind of old white man style of military history. There is happy. There is happy military history. I got fed that when I was in school. Mm. It, it's all. It's all about. It's. It's all the battles that the English yep, won. Exactly. Right? It's oh, and, and the English went and beat all the baddies, didn't they? Yeah. Right. Well, this is talking about unemployment. Let's say unemployment, disability. Like one of the things that was the most shocking in my records was domestic abuse with what we know as PTSD, right? So like that, these veteran husbands are trying to kill their wives and children because they're coming home with the shock of the war. And I'm not excusing it, but it's like one of the bigger points is that the families are fighting each other to survive because the trauma of combat came home. And some of these soldiers will die in attics like animals in asylums because, and it's like, there's, that's the war. That's the consequences of war, you know, Pickett's Charge or, you know, Sherman's March. Let's talk about Sherman's March and how it empowered enslaved people to find freedom. That's the reason, and others argue this, that's the reason Sherman's March is so controversial with quotes in the South is because what it really did to liberation for, for enslaved people. That's, that's the truth of it. But versus this was oppressive in nature. No, it's not to someone who is li- living in bondage. And those are that, like, to me, that's what's exciting is the field of history of academia is so diverse, right? History of medicine, for example, LGBTQIA+, like you name it. And it's like, that's what we need. And we need to not just look at, yes, I love the civil war, but guess what? I recognize that most people don't. And I'm cool with that. But understanding how someone looking at the uh, war of the roses, somebody looking at colonial British, uh, you know, oppression through capitulation, those are all important and gives us a better understanding of what war did to people, to environments, to, to animals, to plant, like all of it, it matters. It does. Uh, and if you're interested in that, follow at War and Society on Twitter, because we are just getting going. Uh, be with us for the ride. It'll be epic. But man, <laughs> away from military history, what does the future hold? How do we make sure, are we going in the right direction already? And how do we make sure we stay going in the right direction? I mean, what, what you were just describing, Holly, that sounds like, the future of history to respond to what's actually that sounds like the future of history right it, it's it's taking let's take the, the the field of history that i'm going to get into trouble here saying this but some <laughs> people would say is them is is one of the let's say one of the more conservative oh hell yes yeah. i don't know if that's fair to say it is right. yeah, that, it is. and yeah. then rethink it right kind of completely from the ground up Right, um, but not in a way that excludes anything. Not right. not to say let's not ever talk about battles yeah. or those you know those generals, the famous generals, but to include everything to get kind of a whole view. And I know this is going on. I don't. I'm not an expert in that. But I know in the study of the First World War, for example, a huge amount of work has been done on on the society part of it. You know, if you're talking about your war and society, I think that. That principle that you're applying to looking at the, the military experience can be applied to all areas of history, all fields and topics. That same kind of idea. That's that's where that's where history goes in the future. Although there is no future, you realize that there's only a thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know future. what? Interesting. Every second that goes by was just that's the past. I'm just saying. <laughs> what interests me yeah. is that a couple of people already have swatted at us for having out of i think 11 on the committee three white men 
And I'm like, really? oh, what? So do we not let white men on at all? Do they not get a say anymore? Are we not just part of the problem if we do that? <laughs> and I'm sorry, but if our panel of military history is 70% gender and ethnic diverse, then I'm going to say, go bite me, basically, because I think we're doing really well. I mean, to yeah. your point, we don't ever need mantles either. We don't need an all-male panel. Like, it's, oh, that's a big problem. Like, if I see those, I'm mantles. like, no, nah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> a mantle. I love that. Mantle. <laughs> I stole oh that. God, I did not create that. Oh, I just life. Oh, God. Yeah. I was thinking as everybody was speaking, I haven't, I've been quiet here for a while, just taking it all in. But essentially, the public, scholars, our administrators, we're all going to have to become very comfortable with messiness. Yes. None of this is going to be easy. And again, that kind of post-enlightenment unidirectional narrative that we know is bullshit, right? It just means that all these perspectives are going to make everything a hell of a lot messier. And and do you know what? History is messy. Look at the world out now. It's messy. messy. I want to write the history of the 21st century in 200 years time. It's also spicy. And I I like a little bit of spice. I like it when it's spicy. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, it makes it so much more interesting and to to be inclusive, right? I think as well, like people say, oh, but I just teach people about the Nazis and Hitler (sighs) because it's what they're interested in. I'm sorry, but if you're a historian and you're good at your job, you'll get people excited about your subject. Yep. I mean, I've always break my students heart for a Civil War course. I'm like, uh, so I'm just going to start off. We're never going to talk about a battle like the way you think. <laughs> like this is going to have a social, historical, gendered focus. So we'll get a battle, just not what you thought. And Gone with the Wind can suck it. Oh, God. Well, that's a whole other. <laughs> that's another podcast, Alex. We're going to put that in in a minute. And I think I just wanted to say real quick, like the, the, the where I think that we can continue to go is being more getting the public involved. And I say this just in terms of people talk about history all the time, every day, right? They talk about these things, but it's like, if they feel like they're active participants um, with various, you know, public, so people who do public history, um, which I think is amazing, digital history, that to me is like, that's, that's pushed how I think of history and how I engage with people. If our professions are gonna survive, we need to make it more, like we said in a meeting once, fun. Mm-hmm. When we talk about this stuff, it needs to be fun. It is fun. It's frustrating. It's de- it can be depressing. It, you know, if I'm talking about Jim Crow, I'm not going to lie. I, I'm very sad for that day. But I also look at the flip side is that they didn't give up. Yeah. Right. Like that's that's the part. And it can be empowering even when we look at oppression. But sometimes history is just like, can we just laugh at this thing that's happening right now? Yeah. Like in whatever. Right. Like. Especially yeah, if you're trying. We have a history hack mug and it's a kit quote from down the pub on our merch store. And basically right. the quote just says, um, it would be funny if all these people hadn't died. <laughs> <laughs> because it is, uh, history's full of fun stuff. If right. um, a big enough history nerd will be able to make you laugh with any subject going, any subject. I mean, this sounds a bit cliche, but are we essentially saying, look, can we just start putting some of the humanity back into this? That we kind of... We, we sucked a lot of the humanity out with those old tropes that we talked about, about put these people up on a pedestal and weren't they wonderful? And there's one way of understanding this story. And now what we've done over you know, the past 50 years, but particularly now going, okay, can we start talking about actual people and diverse groups of people mm-hmm. rather than just. And how all of the stuff was happening, like my biggest beef, you know, my biggest beef with the first world war is I've done a Western front book. Well, I've done an Eastern front book. Well, I'm telling you, nobody divided them up during the war. It was one huge 
cluster bomb of messiness mm-hmm. all happening at the same time. Just because you need to arrange a narrative doesn't mean you can put history into little boxes. The boxes don't exist. Ooh, you just literally took part of my introduction. I said, I was saying something like in there about, you know, historians uh, for a long time have tried to put, you know, they said that the, the Civil War defined these people or reconstruct whatever period, right? That defined the people. And I'm saying, no, the people define those moments. And they like, so that's how we need to understand them, that they're people living through these very important, like now that we understand times and stop saying, well, the Civil War era, it's like, no, these people in this moment, this is what they did in their different ways. There is no singular way to talk about um, the black experience in the diasporic sense, even the white male experience. It's not universal because when I talk to students about, hey, did you know white men oppressed other white men sometimes because they were poor? So even when we talk about whiteness and racism, we have to add classism, religion, right? Like then you understand how messy it even is to understand whiteness. They don't agree on what is quote true, you know, white male, you know, woman, whatever. One thing I've always wanted to do, and if anybody steals this idea, I will come for you. I've always wanted <coughs> to rewrite Gone with the Wind from the point of view of Sam, the uh, slave that they, he kind of pops up in and out, or from Mammy's point of view about how literally she can't stand Scarlet and wants to whoop the living daylights out of her because she's a monster. Do Mammy's Civil War. <laughs> Uh, I would, know. I will take anything other like, cause yeah, going with the, whatever, that's a whole, And on that note, having bashed on with the wind. <laughs> so the people got rich off it. I'm sure they'll get over it. Frankly, Zach, I don't give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's it. That's, the that's it. There that's we go. The that's the wrap. Right Thank you, Holly. <laughs> Brilliant. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 